the Avenging Hour. <laughs> Trying to be serious. Why are you going to make me laugh? Sorry. I'm your host, Jason. And I'm John. This is our NPR voices. <laughs> We're here to talk about superheroes today. Everyone has their favorite. Jason, what is a superhero? <laughs> the world needs to know. You know that thing that they always... That thing. You know that thing that those people do with that stuff? Oh, yes. I love that. <laughs> well, who doesn't? So, uh, I guess one of those conversations that comes up when you're out with your friends, you're out drinking, you're doing whatever, and, and people are sitting around a table, and you're like, you know, if you could have dinner with famous people, alive or dead, you know, pick three, let's, uh, let's do that with you. If, if you could sit down and talk Avengers lore with an Avenger, a villain, and some sort of ancillary character, who would you pick? I would pick... Only up to what we read? Yeah, fair enough. Well, the ancillary character would be Jarvis. Okay. Yeah. Because, first of all, there aren't that many... But second of all, well, it's Rick Jones. But also... <laughs> Rick Jones! I feel like Jarvis would know all the dirt, right? You get some drinks in him, because he sees everything. And you know the Avengers treat him like furniture. So he sees everything. I saw the time that Mr. Pym smacked Mrs. Pym. But, uh, so that would be that would be the ancillary. As far. And the hero and the villain aren't going to fight each other. It's, you know... Sure, peaceful. sure, sure. It's, the problem is so many of the villains up to this point in time have been crazy... Oh, no, Taskmaster. Obviously, I would want to talk to Taskmaster. He would be fun. He may not really know much about Avenging lore, but he'd be, you got to admit, he'd be the most fun to sit down and chat with at a dinner party. And for Hero, I think it would be, I think I'd go Jan. Yeah? I'd go with the Wasp. Get the woman's perspective on everything? She, well, she just seems like she'd be a lot of fun to eat with. The conversation would flow freely. She also would be, you know, even if you picked, you know, Captain America and the Red Skull, I knew he was not an Avengers villain, and you said they wouldn't fight, you know, probably a little tense, but I would see Jan being relatively, you know, okay with pretty much anybody in the villain chair. Plus, if you think about it, she's been there from the beginning. Yeah, yeah, she really has, so I think she'd be interesting. I would think, you know, at a dinner party, the most entertaining one to pick would be Hercules, but he has only been around for like three issues. Yeah. At this point. Plus, he's not entertaining, he's annoying, and I would want to hit him. <laughs> Although, I don't want to pick the beast because we've seen him out uh, drinking, right? Though, if you want, if you want a good wingman, you know he might be who you'd pick after dinner. He keep conversations going at least. Yeah, yeah, that's true. He can talk on pretty much any subject. I mean, Hawkeye would probably be fun too, and certainly would be willing to. He'd be willing to probably dish on just about anything. And again, easy to get drunk. And the worst group of people you could pick be like Vision, and Ultron, and Henry Peter Gyrick. Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> Anyway, what are we doing today? We're doing an annual. Oh, wait, we got two issues, right? Two issues, but one of them's an annual. <sighs> Previously on The Avenging Hour, we met Pyron, the walking dumpster fire. <laughs> <laughs> then we spent some time with the Shadow Lord and the Berserker and cried ourselves to sleep, wondering what the Avengers had done to offend the Marvel Universe so deeply. And now, episode 92. Episode 92 starts out with Avengers Annual number 10. This is the 1981 annual, and it is by two folks... Who we've not talked about before. So let's talk about them. It is written by Chris Claremont. Sorry. You're getting all choked up. <laughs> Chris. It's written by Chris Claremont. Chris Claremont was, is, if you know anybody that knows comics or certainly knows the X-Men, knows Chris Claremont. He was born on November 25th in 1950. And he started out in the 1970s basically as a gopher and an assistant at Marvel Comics. And then started writing for him. Writing for him. Writing for them. Well, it was Stan Lee pretty much, right? I don't think there's no bearing the lead with Chris Claremont. He is best known for writing The Uncanny X-Men. He wrote that book for almost two decades, making it the ridiculously successful juggernaut 
but it became by the by the early nineties. Wait, didn't he also write Power Man and Iron Fist? Wasn't that him? He wrote a lot of things, but I, I want to point out how. Spe- not only did he write X Men for a long time and was writing it when it became so popular, but we have to remember that when he took over the X Men, they had just been rescued from cancellation. Well, not cancellation, but reprints. Yeah. After being reprints for like five years, so that book was in the toilet. They were in a bad place. But yes, he has actually written a ton of comics. He has written Aliens, Predator, Big Hero Six, Captain Britain. Contest of Champions 2, Excalibur, Fantastic Four, Gen X, Iron Fist, John Carter, Marvel Team-Up, Ms. Marvel, Exiles, New Mutants, Sovereign Seven, Spider-Woman, Wolverine, X-Men Forever, and that's just the long runs, books where he's got a decent run of issues on. He's obviously not just a mutant guy, even though a lot of those are mutant books. He writes non-mutant stuff as well. Plus, he's written novels Three of the novels he's written, he has co-written with George Lucas. They are not good. I wouldn't imagine. You know, Chris Claremont, I don't know, how do you feel about Chris Claremont? He writes a lot. (laughs) Isn't that pretty much what everyone thinks? He's very verbose. He packs a lot into issues, which we'll see. I think when you read Chris Claremont's early issues, it's good, strong stuff. His early X-Men comics are really good and solid. I think his early Iron Man and Power Fist, Power Fist and Iron Man, is solid. (laughs) He's, uh, you know, that kind of stuff is good, but... Did you say Power Fist and Iron Man? <laughs> he has written good comics. I think, unfortunately, what happens is, by the by the mid to late 80s, he had become... His books had become so popular that editors were just letting him do what he wanted. And yes. He always had stylistic tics and certain plot lines and types of characters that he went back to again and again and again, and that just became more and more pronounced. And his books became kind of... Epic-like. Yeah. I find a lot of his stuff, like, unreadable now. Those 80s X-Men, 80s and the early 90s, were so soap opera. Yeah. They were like, oh, I don't even know what's going on anymore. And everybody talks with a certain cadence. Like, you can see it in the word balloons (laughs) and in the punctuation in the sentences. And it's really annoying. That being said... God Loves, Man Kills, his, an X-Men graphic novel he wrote, is one of the best graphic novels I've ever read. Yes. So he does have, there is definitely talent there. It is drawn by Michael Golden. I don't have a lot of biographical details on Michael Golden. He did the Micronauts, didn't he? Yes, he did. He did. He actually started out as a commercial artist and started working in comics in the 1970s. He isn't an artist who does long runs on anything. Uh, he's basically done a, a decent amount of comics, penciling a little bit here and there. Most of them, he only did one or two issues. There's a few series that he has longer runs on. The Nom, Nom. Micronauts, Bucky (laughs) O'Hare, Echo of Future Past, and and he has done a ton of covers. Did he do do G.I. Joe stuff? One or two, but not a lot. Mostly covers. Uh, I like Michael Golden's art. I'm not sure he's the greatest storyteller we've ever seen. His stuff worked well for the Nom. It works well for more realistic things, I think. I'm not sure he's a superhero kind of guy. But those are our creators, and we not only have new creators, but we have a ton, a ton of new characters in this issue. But how about we deal with them after the synopsis? Well, sure, they'll go after the roll call, right? (laughs) Here we are. We start in San Francisco at the Golden Gate Bridge. A woman is falling off it, but she's saved by Spider-Woman. Spider-Woman takes her charge to the hospital, where she learns that the woman is physically fine, but that her mind is basically blank. 
on par with that of an infant. Also, the woman is Carol Danvers. <gasps> dun, dun, dun. Also, the police assume this was a homicide attempt, since she had no identification or anything on her that would have made it easy to find out her identity. The police aren't sure what to do next, but Spider-Woman has an idea. Contact a telepath. Luckily, Spider-Woman knows Professor Charles Xavier, telepath to the stars. The literal stars, as his girlfriend is an alien. Spider-Woman calls up the X-Mansion, and soon she's joined with the bold brain himself. He agrees to come see Danvers, and soon he and Storm are at the hospital, with him doing the telepathy bit, but all sneaky-like, so no one notices. <laughs> he lets Spider-Woman know that Danvers is indeed a blank slate, although he thinks he can find some of her core personality bits buried very deeply within her. However, he can confirm that Danvers was attacked, and her assailant was named Rogue. We now start Chapter 2, but without any stupid chapter names. <laughs> we're in New York, and we're watching Captain America get his butt kicked. Hey, there are Avengers in this Avengers annual. His assailant? Rogue. After knocking Cap out, Rogue kisses him, absorbing his powers and knowledge, just as she did with Carol Danvers, although she's careful this time not to touch him too long, lest the transfer become permanent. Back at Avengers Mansion, the team is waiting for Cap to show up so they can start their meeting. They don't have long to wait, because here comes Cap now, right through the window. Whoops. The Avengers call in Iron Man, and he calls in Dr. Blake, world's best doctor. However, before Iron Man can leave his office to get to Avengers Mansion, he's visited by Janet Van Dyne, who suddenly slaps a doohickey on his armor, which freezes him in place. She then reveals herself to be the evil mutant Mystique. Thor has made it to the mansion, though, as has Spider-Woman, who flew over to New York when some background work found a connection between Carol Danvers, Ms. Marvel, and the Avengers. Thor turns into Don Blake before entering the mansion, since that's who the team is waiting for, and is immediately sucker-punched by Rogue, who had been lying in wait. Luckily, Spider-Woman can come to the rescue. She keeps Rogue busy while Blake struggles to turn back into Thor, and once he's the Thunder God again, he is not happy. Unfortunately, he's not immune to Rogue's power and falls before her, just as some of the Avengers pop out of the mansion to see what's going on. Rogue easily holds them off, but then flees, leaving the team alive, but wounded. We start Chapter 3 with Spider-Woman giving the team a briefing on what happened to Carol Danvers, and the team letting her know what happened in issue number 200. We do find out that Carol Danvers had appeared back on Earth three months ago and had been living a normal life in San Francisco. But why wouldn't she contact us, the team wails? We supported her going off with her rapist. She should have appreciated that. Anyway, the Beast can track Rogue by tracking the energy she stole from Ms. Marvel. That brings us to Chapter 4 and Riker's Island, which a strange aircraft is approaching. This entire plan has been about breaking the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants out of jail, and Destiny, Blob, Avalanche, and Pyro have been waiting for their chance. Their chances now as Rogue throws the paralyzed Iron Man out of their aircraft, <laughs> using him to destroy the power systems at the prison. My favorite part of the story. It's great. <laughs> the Brotherhood uses this as a chance to escape, but they only get a chance to costume up and regroup before the Avengers arrive. While the two groups clash, Spider-Woman heads off to find Iron Man, while Mystique heads off to stop her. The Brotherhood is making short work of the Avengers thanks to Destiny's abilities. However, Spider-Woman manages to free Iron Man and he tears into the Brotherhood with vigor. The tide has turned and the Avengers now have the Brotherhood on the run. Well, two of them are on the run. Mystique and Rogue flee in their aircraft, leaving their friends behind to remain as prisoners. The Avengers mop up the four baddies on the ground and soon they're back in the Huskow. We end with Chapter 5, some weeks later, as the Avengers pay a visit to the X-Mansion. The Avengers have come to see Carol and the X-Men leave her alone with her former teammates. 
Carol greets them and explains that she remembers most of her life now, thanks to Professor X. The Avengers ask about Marcus, who Carol says is dead, and when they offer their sympathy over the loss of a loved one, Carol flips out, actually slapping Thor. She mentions the part about how Marcus had her under his mental control, and then informs the team that he died because he screwed up in making his machine, suddenly aging to dust when they got back to Limbo. She had to figure out his machines on her own to get back, and once back, she had no desire to ever see the Avengers again. She hated them. When she was suddenly pregnant, they cared only for the kid, not for her, and they believed everything Marcus said. She tells them to grow and learn from this mistake and go out and be the best Avengers they can be. On the ride home, the Scarlet Witch and the Vision contemplate what they've been through. But honestly, we've reached the end. No. Our roll call this issue is Hawkeye, Wonder Man, Vision, Scarlet Witch, Beast, Iron Man, Thor, and Captain America. We also see Spider-Woman and Oodles of X-Men, Shadowcat, Professor X, Storm, Wolverine, Nightcrawler, Colossus, uh, we see Jarvis, we see Jocasta, we see Carol Danvers, and our villains are the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. That would be Rogue, Mystique, Destiny, Pyro, Blob, and Avalanche. Tell us who all of those people are. Bloody hell. <laughs> all right. We got time. This, so first of all, I will say that the cover to this issue is very busy. And so is the insides of this issue. They really are. We I, have, that was my first note, is that the art feels very full, but I'm not sure I like it. There is so much going on. It's like reading an encyclopedia. It's crazy. Speaking of encyclopedias, Spider-Woman. Let's start with her. This is the first Spider-Woman, Jessica Drew. She first appeared in Marvel Spotlight number 32, which was back in February of 1977. She was created by Archie Goodwin and Marie Severin. I think everyone probably, or, well, maybe everyone our age knows the story of Spider-Woman, which was that they basically created her just to keep the copyright on the name. Right. And because, and I, I think because there was no really strong idea when they created her of who she was, that's why her, her origin story makes no sense and is really complicated. They love her, though. They really they do. They pushed her hard. They tried. And then they left her fallow, and then they pushed her again. Yeah. Um, we're going to go with what her origin story was at this point in time. It's been retconned and retconned and retconned, but we're going she's, to... She's not a triple agent at this point? No. Okay. This is what it was in 1981. Her father was best friends with the guy who became the High Evolutionary, and her father and the High Evolutionary moved to Wondergore and built their huge fortress there that we've seen many times in Bova. Sure, there's a demon living under it. Yeah, well, they took her there, and she became ill because of all the radiation in the area, and her father decided he could find a way to cure her using a serum based on a radiated spider's blood. Because that would make sense. It worked for Spider-Man, right? Sure. <laughs> she is cured, but she gets powers, and that's when she goes to move. And she eventually moved to San Francisco to be a bounty hunter, private investigator, superhero. Her powers involve superhuman strength, sticking to walls, she can shoot venom blasts, and she's immune to poisons and toxins. And she can evidently float. It's true. As spiders do. This is the first time we see Shadowcat. Shadowcat is actually Kitty Pride. She's not called Shadowcat in this issue because she hadn't taken that name yet. She first appeared in Uncanny X-Men 129, which was January of 1980. She is, as many people know, a young Jewish girl who, uh, who is a mutant with the power to phase through solid matter. She has just joined the school at this point in time. If she has a code name, it's probably Ariel. And she first appears in on page five here, and her eyes are gigantic. <laughs> She's a cool character. I like Shadowcat. We also see, we pretty much see all the new X-Men for the first time this issue. The first appearance of Storm. 
She first appeared in Giant Size X-Men number one, which was May of 1975. She is Aurora Monroe. She's a mutant who can manipulate the weather. She is a was is an orphan. You know, I was kind of kidding about doing all these. You could just say we saw the X-Men and move on. It's the first <laughs> Nightcrawler and Colossus. They appeared in the exact same first issue she did. And uh, Nightcrawler obviously is the German mutant who can teleport and looks like a demon. Colossus is the Russian mutant who can change his body into organic steel. And he's strong. It's also the first time we've seen Wolverine, who first appeared in Incredible Hulk number 180, which was October of 1974. He'll eventually become an Avenger. I think we all know who Wolverine is. (laughs) And Carol Danvers is back. She's back. We'll be talking about Carol Danvers for sure. Also, you didn't point out, I believe this is the first appearance of the Goblin Queen, Madeline Pryor. I wondered if you noticed her. Yes, they make a... It's really weird that they went out of their way to say, Hi, I'm Maddie Pryor. It would be weird if Chris Claremont hadn't written this, but it's Chris Claremont. Is is this her first appearance? I do not know, but we see this little girl, and they say that her name is Madeline Pryor, which is weird because she's not a little girl. I guess she hadn't been aged up by Mr. Sinister yet. We were, I refuse to talk about her history. It's really ridiculous. I just wanted to see... No, her first appearance... Oh, interesting. What's her first appearance? According to Wikipedia... No, that's not canon. It says that her first appearance is Uncanny X-Men number 168 in April of 1983. So, yeah. So, Maddie Pryor appeared in Avengers Annual number 10 two years before she would actually appear in the X-Men. Interesting. As an adult. Oh, we should probably... We haven't, we haven't seen the X-Men in a long time. So we should do a quick X-Men update. The old team left and the new team started. All right. That's our update. (laughs) One of them died. There's one that's not here. Wait, he didn't stick around long, did he? Banshee? He wasn't around for long. He did. Well, no, he stuck around for a while. Did he? I don't know why he's on this issue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he did. Oh, and this is the first appearance, period, of Rogue. Yeah, which is weird. That they would introduce her here? Yes, and that they call her by name twice before we ever know who she is or what she does. They made it feel like she had been seen somewhere before, which I guess is good, good writing, and seems like she'd been part of the team for a while, or they all knew who she was, and they were working well together. Look how big Kitty Pride's eyes are in that. They really are huge. She looks like a Monchichi. (laughs) She's so soft and cuddly. (laughs) These annuals, I mean, we kind of talked about it with the artwork and the fact that it's a, a creative team. That doesn't do Avenger stuff, but these annuals always, they always feel kind of off to me anyway, because they're removed from the normal continuity. And this one's very off. Yeah, I'm guessing because of the different creative team, these characters, like even the Avengers characters almost seem like strangers. Like, someone completely different is handling them, and it's obvious. Obvious, again, by the fact that we meet all the X-Men before we even see an Avenger. Yeah, (laughs) we're, 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 what, like six pages into the issue before we see any Avengers. Uh, when Professor X comes to investigate Carol, he doesn't—he talks to everybody telepathically, so no one will know what he's doing. But he just sits there and he stares at her. And this is not the first time that Professor X has done this uh, in in the X Men's comic. He does this all the time. It's so stupid because he's like, I don't want anyone to know my powers, so they're going to call a specialist in, and he's going to come and just look at a person, not examine <laughs> her anywhere, just sit there and stare at and her. Not even go, hmm, just stare blankly. Like the, quietly. He's like the creepiest expert ever. I know we're not talking about... No, I was continuing my theme here. Then on page 7, we see the team for the first time. And you can tell that Claremont's trying to prove that he knows who these characters are. But it comes off weird, like they're guest stars in an X-Men comic. Yeah. They really feel like guest stars in an X-Men comic. There's way, way too much talking and captioning going on. But that's kind of Chris Claremont. Yeah. Thing. 
Jarvis is really dressed up this issue. Oh, yeah. He's got like a flower in his lapel and everything. We get to see Mrs. Arbogast again, a longtime supporting uh, character in the Iron Man magazine. And I forgot, when I was talking about new characters, I forgot to mention Mystique. The first time we see Mystique, who actually first appeared in Ms. Marvel, issue number 16 in May of 1978. And she's a mutant who can change her, her shape to look like anybody. We really don't need to know much else about her either. And it's also the first appearance. This is the first time we see the Brotherhood, which would be Destiny, Avalanche, and Pyro. We first we have actually seen the Blob before. We have? Yes. He was in a flashback during the Sentinel storyline. And I mentioned him then. We had a Sentinel storyline? But uh, remember that? Destiny first appeared in Uncanny X-Men 141. Destiny, Avalanche, and Pyro all first appeared in Uncanny X-Men 141 in um, January of 1981. Quickly, very quickly, the Blob's power is that he's really fat and you can't move him. Pyro's power is that he can control flame, but not create it. Avalanche's power is that he can create earthquakes and vibrations. And Destiny's power is she can see the future... But not that far in the future. Right. They also, um, when we see Mystique, not this first time we see her, but later on, someone makes some comment about how she looks like Nightcrawler. Yeah. Was that a thing yet? They had not explored that relationship yet. Eventually we'll find out that she is Nightcrawler's mother. So how weird is it that Chris Claremont writes this Avengers annual and he seeds it with Madeline Pryor and a mention of Nightcrawler and Mystique looking alike? Yeah, that's really kind but, of forward thinking there. But well, that I mean, you can we can say a lot about Chris Claremont, but he was good at that. P- maybe potentially still is good about that. That's kind of amazing. It's kind of amazing and also kind of annoying because if you read his X Men run, he'll see plot lines in like 1985 that he won't get to until 1993, <laughs> and that gets a little old. <laughs> I really have very little more to say about this, so I do want to say uh, when Rogue is kicking Thor and Spider Woman's butt, Hawkeye runs out. And, well, Hawkeye, one of my division went out. And Hawkeye says, Christ, Thor's being trashed by a woman? No, uh, bless your, or your sexist little heart. You chauvinist, you. Uh, my favorite panel in this whole issue is when Rogue throws Wonder Man uh, at the dumpster. Face first at the side of the dumpster. Like a rag doll. Where is it? Oh, there it is. Right there. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. It looks like something that, like, Don Martin would draw for Mad Magazine. The Beast mentions that, that Rogue's effects on people are temporary. But then he also says that he doesn't know how long they'll last. Well, temporary, but he doesn't know how temporary. I, and he says that he knows that because of some machine or some analysis they did in a lab. What? That doesn't make any sense. I will say two things about Rogue's powers in this issue. <clears throat> I am relatively positive that Thor and godlike beings are immune to her powers. I think. I thought. I don't know. I don't remember. I could be wrong. I might be confusing Rogue with the Space Phantom, which probably happens a lot. <laughs> and also, her her powers last a lot longer in this issue than normal. Yeah. Like the powers she absorbs. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they last a long time. And she's usually, she's usually more affected by it, too, because she takes people's memories and yes. messes with her head. Yes. We don't see any of that here. She no. just takes their powers. And we find out in this issue that she drained Carol Danvers dry. Right. But we don't see it. Right. So I don't know if it was intentional or unintentional, and whereas in the future this will cause her quite a bit of mental anguish, at this point in time it doesn't seem to bother at all. No, no, no. Well, at this point in time she's a villain. True. She later, you know, redeems herself and probably feels bad about things. So my next note is, is, you know, what we mentioned during your write-up. I love the fact that they use Iron Man as a projectile. <laughs> it's hilarious. Uh, Wonder Man calls Pyro an Englishman. He actually calls him an Englishman. Pyro is Australian. It's true. Idiots. John Allardyce. Why do they keep calling Spider-Woman the Dark Angel? Uh, that I don't Are know. Are they trying to make that stick? Uh, I... At least four times in this issue, they call they refer to her as the Dark Angel. Yeah, they must be. 
Spider-Woman's book was never a very big seller for Marvel, no matter how much they pushed it. Come on, man. It had Turner D. Century in it. Didn't say it wasn't a good book, just not a great seller. She fought against, uh, what was that guy's name, The Needle? Yes, he would eventually be, we'll eventually see him in the Avengers, because he becomes part of Night Shift. Night Shift. Yeah, yeah. Uh, It took me a while going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth to figure out why Scarlet Witch was nearly unconscious. Why is she nearly unconscious? Flip back to, oh, no, it's right there. It starts on that. They all get out of the Quinjet. Yeah. And then Avalanche causes an avalanche and tumbles the Quinjet off the side. And I guess they all get kind of thrown off balance. Okay. Now flip the page. The second page of the first panel. Oh, I see. Everybody else is fine. Everybody else that got off the Quinjet and went through the avalanche is fine. Scarlet Witch is basically unconscious. That is a little odd. I I would claim it to be... um Sexism, except for the fact that Claremont normally writes very strong female characters, and he does in this issue. I kept thinking I missed a page, and I was flipping back and forth and back and forth trying to find out what happened to her, and they don't even explain it. They're just like, oh, well, look, Scarlet Witch is finally coming to, and I'm like, coming to from what? Maybe he just doesn't like her. And then we get to the end, and as much as we hated what they did to Carol Danvers in issue 200, I don't really think this resolution is much better. What is that? I don't... I feel like she's taking her anger at the team way out of context. Like, she didn't put up any kind of fight. How were they supposed to know? No, wait, wait, wait. She was being mind-controlled. She couldn't put up a fight. And they should have known because it made no sense. Well, I know, and we talked about that when we discussed issue 200. I just feel like she's putting a lot of blame on them. Well, let's be clear about this issue. So Chris Claremont had written Ms. Marvel's comic, if not for its, well, I guess not for its entire run, because I don't think he started writing it. But he wrote it for a lot of its run. And he clearly liked the character. Well, sure. And when, when, when David, when he saw what happened to Ms. Marvel in Avengers 200, this entire issue was very obviously Chris Claremont saying, oh, hell no. <laughs> you do not get to do that to a character that I like have invested that much time into. So this whole thing is just one giant retcon. And... Ms. and Carol Danvers is yelling at the Avengers is without a doubt Claremont yelling at Michelini and Jim Shooter and anybody that allowed that issue to go out. Yeah, and Jim Jim Shooter like refused to take any blame for that issue as well. Yeah. Well, I'm just the editor-in-chief. I just sign off on things. And the co-writer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing to do with it. I don't know what you're talking about. And then <laughs> my, my least favorite line of the whole book is at the end when the Vision says, and you failed her. I think, really? Come on, man. You were there too. Well, yeah. 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 It's a little harsh. I know you're a robot and all, but... Way to throw the limb on someone else. Dial it back. I don't have anything else. MVP? Iron Man, eventually. Yeah. I mean, he's the one that eventually turns the tide. I mean, first he... Plus, I'll just give him the MVP, because, you know, he made a good rock. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what about your useless character? Uh, Jocasta. Why is, she, why is she there? I should pick Captain America. He got taken out so quickly, and he should be able to hold his own against Rogue. I'm not sure Jocasta even did anything. She said, and the Scarlet Witch. <laughs> I did not have a quote. Do you have a best quote taken out of context? I do. I slammed into you full force and you're still standing. Nice. Avengers level threat? Sure. I think so. <laughs> there was enough of them. I mean, even sheer numbers. Well, and it's a good plan. I mean, I think Mystique and Rogue have a pretty decent plan going. Yeah. That almost works. Final grade. I gave it a B. I said it's, it started out slow, had a really strong fight scene. I'm not sure about the resolution, but there was a lot going on, and I, it was entertaining. I gave it an A minus. I really liked. I actually like this issue. I think that again, I like the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. I've always liked them. I love. They're one of my favorite villain teams, and I think they're they're used to really good. They're really they're really well used. This issue. I'm not sure this is an Avengers story. Mm-hmm. It's the no. same thing I have with the Warlock issue where he, where they fight Thanos. I I think you can make a really good argument that this story does not belong in this book, except for bringing back Carol Danvers. 
But that being said... But she hung out with the X-Men enough, too. It could have been an X-Men story. Yeah, that being said, I do still think, though, that this is this is a fun a fun issue. I enjoyed it. I feel like that last issue, you're really going to love this one. <laughs> <laughs> issue 209, from July of 1981, is written by J.M. DeMatteis, with art by Alan Kupperberg, and it is called... The Resurrection Stone. I feel like we've talked about Demetrius and Kupperberg before. We've talked about Kupperberg. I feel like Demetrius wrote a letter and we talked about him. Well, maybe, but we have never done a biography on him. All right. Do you have one? Nope. All right. Born December 15th, 1953. He drew, actually did some drawing as a kid, but basically became a writer. He started at DC in the late 1970s and has written a ton of comics. The ones with the longest runs are Superman, Batman, Booster Gold, Doctor Fate, Doom Patrol, House of Mystery, Martian Manhunter, Mr. Miracle, Spectre, Captain America, Conan, The Defenders, Ghost Rider, Marvel Team-Up, X-Factor, and he has written TV. He has written on Brave and the Bold, Be Cool Scooby-Doo, Ben 10, JL Unlimited, Superboy, and Teen Titans Go, among others. I think he is probably best known for two things that could not be more different. For DC, oh, we know this one. with Keith Giffen, he was the writer behind the relaunch of Justice League as more of a humorous title. Yes. Amazing issues. Awesome. Lots of fun. And at Marvel, he wrote Craven's Last Hunt in the Spider-Man titles, a six-issue storyline. Also hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> but that's my point. I mean, he's got a wide range, because Craven's Last Hunt, I love... But is very introspective and yes. psychological, and and I think that's probably what he's better known for is the very heady kind of out there psychological stuff. I think his Doctor Strange and Doctor Fate, Fate yeah. are probably more him than his straight superhero work or his comedic superhero work. Okay, is that enough? We talked about Kupperberger. Yeah, and I, I will say I actually like James Dematteis. Dematteis, I like James James Dematteis quite a bit. Yes, and we have talked about Kupperberger. Yes, and his brother. Let's move on. Dateline, April 6, 1981. My father's 34th birthday. Oh. Somewhere in the Nevada... Day. <laughs> somewhere in the Nevada desert, an alien shoots another alien and then grabs a transport beam out of town. Meanwhile, at Avengers Mansion... I think I put that in every write-up that... It, meanwhile, at Avengers Mansion... <laughs> Beast is entertaining an old flame named Vera, who has recently come back into his life. We learn that these two lovebirds have had an on-again, off-again relationship for years. But now Beast is truly smitten. But, since this is a comic book and a plot needs to move along, Jarvis almost immediately poisons Vera with some tea, killing her. Oh, wait. That wasn't Jarvis. It was a scroll in disguise. Before Beast can murder the green-skinned alien, the scroll proposes a deal. He'll bring Vera back to life if Beast travels back in time to retrieve the two fragments of... The Resurrection Stone. And we're settled in for a blah-blah-blah history lesson about ancient scientists and alien archaeologists with names I can't pronounce. Civilizations rise and fall, time itself is ripped asunder, or something, I don't know. I skipped over most of it because I didn't want to know. And apparently, neither do the Avengers. As the Skrull finishes his blabbering tale, Wonder Man punches him into a bookcase. As the rest of the team advances on the fallen alien, Beast cries out that he'll do anything to save Vera. And here we go. The Avengers visited Reed Richards and used Doctor Doom's time machine to travel back to 14th century England at the height of the Black Plague to find some dumb kid named Devlin. The townsfolk immediately think the Avengers are demons and close into attack, but Wanda releases a hex bolt to calm them down, and they pick some old crone to take them to Devlin. The lunatic child stands in a tower and lords his power over the people below, so Wonder Man punches the tower and Devlin tumbles down. Except he doesn't. 
Instead, he hovers above them and summons a bunch of zombies, dead bodies with no souls, with the power of half the resurrection stone. The team easily holds off the undead horde while Beast acrobats the stone fragment from Devlin's hand. Mission accomplished, the team poofs away to their next destination, 1945 Germany, outside the Dachau concentration camp at the end of World War II. The team finds the other half of the Resurrection Stone in the hand of Saul Rosenblatt, a camp survivor who lost his wife and children during the fall of the camp. Yet he has brought them back to life again, refusing to let them die. This half of the stone provides souls but no living bodies, so his family can speak but not move. They beg him to let them die, and eventually Beast talks the stone from Saul's hand. The team returns to Earth and takes a Quinjet up to the Skrull's orbiting ship. Beast is transported aboard, and now it's decision time. Will he hand over the Resurrection Stone to save Vera's life, knowing that its awesome power will be in the hands of the Skrull Empire? Or will he have a change of heart, acknowledging that the Stone's power is far too great a threat to justify bringing back one human life? Duh. If nothing else, Beast lives for the drama. He crushes the Resurrection Stone in his bare hands, and the rest of the team suddenly appears at his side, their appearance explained away in a few sentences by Vision. Wonder Man reveals the Skrull's hiding place, and the team lets Beast punch the Skrull unconscious. Back at the Baxter building, the team explains to Reed Richards that they would have destroyed the stone themselves if Beast didn't, and Reed reveals that Vera isn't actually dead, of course, and he's placed her in a suspended animation, or Sasani tube, until they can find a cure. My god, that's ridiculous. No one mentions what they did with the Skrull, but I'm sure they gave him a stern talking to before letting him escape. The end. A roll call. Beast, Vision, Scarlet Witch, and Wonder Man. We meet Vera, a weird kid named Devlon, concentration camp survivor Saul Rosenblatt, and our villain is a Skrull who, described, who disguised himself as Jarvis. Vera is a real character that was actually in some of the early 1960s X-Men issues. I think they would they used to hang out at the coffee at Go-Go, mm. and they would see her there. I, I, don't, I only have one more note on the issue. And one more? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, can, we can go. Uh, when they're back in the... So there is some emotion, I feel like, at the end of the scene of the Holocaust, and let me be clear, it's not difficult to evoke emotion when you're dealing with the Holocaust. Yeah, they didn't have to dig very deep there. But I'm kind of curious, because the Avengers at this point in time, you know, the the first time, the first half of the stone restores the spirit, but not the body. And then the other one restores the body, but not the spirit. No, other way around. It doesn't matter. Point being. It doesn't, really. <laughs> the Avengers, by the time they get to the Holocaust, have both halves of stone. And there's no discussion, none, about using the whole stone... To resurrect some of these victims of the Holocaust, like Saul Rosenblatt's family. Because the only reason Saul Rosenblatt's having problems is because, you know, the, the, the souls are there, but the bodies are still dead, and that's gross. Of course, that's horrible. You can't, that's monstrous. But they could put the bodies back, they could put the bodies, they could resurrect the bodies as well. And there's no discussion of why don't they do that. Well, for Holocaust people. I mean, this isn't, you know, it's, it's one thing why you don't want to give it to a scroll. But why couldn't they do this to help out Sir Rosenblatt and his family? Because simple time travel rules. Oh, pishaw. You can't go back and bring those people back to life. It's going to affect the time stream later on. Oh, that's silly. And if I believe that, even if I believe that, there's still no discussion of it. I just feel like, I feel like this book had the opportunity to have a discussion about more morality and such that they just completely ignore. They're not there to save people. They're there to get the stone. This stuff has already the happened. Avengers, it's in the past. The Avengers, by definition, wherever they are, are there to save someone. But that's fine. That's it. I don't have any other comments on the story we can talk Talk more about it when we get to the end. This isn't the Black Knight we're talking about here. We have a bullpen bullens again. I know, right? The first one in forever. There is no stand soapbox, though. There is not. In fact, 
there's a note at the beginning of the column that specifically states that people wanted more news and less hype. So I'm guessing that's why Stan Soapbox isn't there. Uh, Jim Shooter writes writes the bullpen bullens as as the new Stan Lee. Yes, he says that Stan's too busy to write because he's the creative director for Marvel Productions, the new movie and TV division of Marvel. So he says Stan will drop by every once in a while, but in the meantime, he's hoping that some of their editors will do their own little boxes. Uh, That'd be great. We'll just have a page full of little boxes. He says he does admit that there will be some hype, but they're going to try to keep it to a minimum. Yeah, most of this is, uh, I mean, I guess they're kind of catching us up with the staff. There's a lot of new people on board since, I guess, Stan, the bullpen bulletin has been gone for a year. Probably. Uh, Denny O'Neill is editing Daredevil. Frank Miller is writing and penciling Daredevil. Louise Jones, also known as Louise Simonson is editing X-Men, and Larry Hama is editing Crazy Magazine. And she's, Louis Jordan's just married Walt Simonson, right? Uh, of course, she won't be involved with the Avengers, but her husband will. And as we just talked about Larry Hama a little bit last episode, he will be running the Avengers in the early 90s for a while. Uh, we learned that John Byrne is now writing and drawing the Fantastic Four, while Dave Cockrum has replaced him uh, on art duties on the X-Men. And both John Byrne and Jim Sterling got married. John Byrne got married to Jim Starlin? Yes. Weird. <laughs> Beautiful ceremony. Uh, and we also learned that Man-Thing is ending with issue number 11 featuring the death of Chris Claremont. It's about time. Wait, what? Really? The death of Chris Claremont? Yeah. That's what yeah, it says. Well. We also found out that Bill Mantlo and his wife had, had a child. A uh, daughter, yes. And Shooter shills for the Pittsburgh Comic Club, our old friends who helped plot the Inferno issues. We had talked about it. You said that you couldn't find much about them, but you knew uh, that they had, like, events. And, and Shooter tells us that they're going to be adding comics to the li- to a library at the University of Pittsburgh. I don't know if that happened or not. There's no letters, so we're not going to talk about them. It would be difficult since they don't exist. <laughs> Who's your MVP? Uh, Beast. He made a hard decision. Yes, I'd put Beast question mark. He's really the only one that did anything. Yeah. Useless character? Everybody else? Yeah. They just kind of stand around and let this stuff happen? Yeah. Yeah. I don't have a quote taken out of context. My wife is a most able woman. Avengers level threat? No. Yeah. Final grade? Uh, I gave it another D. I didn't like a lot of the stuff that we've, <laughs> we've been reading lately. I didn't like it. That was awful. I gave it a B minus. <laughs> you. Of course you did. I think this is the best filling issue that we've had in a long, long time. Why? Because Bullpen Bulletins is back? Yes. <laughs> no. Uh, I think it has a nice flow. I think that J.M. DeMatteis kept it more psychological than action-packed. We didn't have I didn't we didn't have any long five pages of uh, flashbacks to a villain's origin. We didn't have any long. Um, nobody was the most dangerous person in the world ever. Well, we did have a little bit of a flashback with the whole story of the Resurrection Stone that I didn't read. But it wasn't. It, you're right. We did, but it wasn't horrible. It wasn't horribly long. The artwork, you know, it wasn't. It wasn't like jam packed in ten panels to a page. Um, and I felt like the issue kept the stakes personal, which actually was better than. The Shadowlord's going to destroy the world, or the Berserker's going to destroy the world, or Pyron is 8 gazillion degrees Fahrenheit. I, I liked that. I thought he did a nice job with it. I forgot to mention in my roll call that uh, Reed Richards was in this. Do we need to talk about Reed Richards? We've talked about it before. <laughs> Sorry, throw that in there. On our next episode, first the team splits up to fight the weather, then everyone shows up at Avengers Mansion for a new membership drive. Ooh, that's exciting. What well, is exciting? For their membership drive, a, a one-time donation of $10 gets you a tote bag. <laughs> But an ongoing pledge of just $25 a month gets your portrait hung in a random hallway. Stability of the wall not guaranteed. (laughs) (laughs) You know, what's exciting about the membership drive, it suggests that this book will be moving forward again. Well, that'd be nice. That's all I got. This is a short one this week. 
I'm going to go take a nap. So thanks for listening, everyone. If you want to get in touch with us, our email address is mail at avengingour.com. We're also on Facebook, and we have Instagram and Twitter accounts at avenginghour. As always, it's been a pleasure. We're almost through this 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 desert we've been trudging through for the past <laughs> however many episodes. We're like Moses. We've almost made it to the promised land. Almost. Wait, what's in the promised land? Well, Tig- Tigra? Well, we were promised <laughs> Bill Mantlo. And we're not oh, going to find him, so the promised land is going to end up being Bill Shooter. Or Bill Shooter. Oh, it's all, all my stars and girders. It's all the MacGuffin. Thanks for listening, everybody.